the masters almost surely have a plan This clearly may be something near beyond the realm of man And until you thoroughly tested every last close trusted view I find the more you think you know, the less you really do That's true, Dr. Zayas Where would we be without THC? Here we go, folks, drinking a little drink, smoking a little smoke, and missing that old motto here in sunny San Diego. I'm Greg Carlwood, and it's been a while since I put any sort of preface on an episode. I go back and forth because it feels like a double intro sometimes, but also occasionally it helps to set the tone in a way I can only really do after a show's been recorded. But I just wanted to tell you why we did this episode. There's no doubt Gordon is a great guest. I love bringing him back for really any reason. He's always writing interesting posts that are fun to talk about, and we do that today too. But really, Gordon and I have been talking about this major tone change that we've noticed, not only in the general culture, but also specifically in alternative media. As Gordon says, probably part natural psychological reaction to troubled times such as these, and probably part agenda-serving manipulation also. So, I asked if we could record a show about this very area, because I think it might be good to recalibrate once in a while, to maybe step back from things and try to see them with new eyes. And Gordon and I have both been sharing articles at an increased rate that support the argument that we are quickly approaching this period we dramatically refer to as the end of empire, but really, we're seeing a time where the various puppet masters are sprinting with their agendas towards an endgame, and they seem increasingly desperate, which can be dangerous, and increasingly out of breath, which can be hopeful. And people are waking up to the old games, but new games are being played as well. And maybe we're getting caught up in a few, and maybe the immortal words of Kanye ring true, and sometimes we're worried about the wrong things, the wrong things. Another point is we are following right along the trajectory that Gordon lays out in the Chaos Protocols, and it might be a good time to revisit the techniques for navigating this new economic reality that he wrote about. So, without wasting any more time, let's do the damn thing with my friend and yours, Gordon White. They built a little empire out of some crazy garbage Called the blood of the exploited working class But they've overcome their shyness Now we're calling them your highness And the world screams, save me Alright, Higher Side Chatters, it seems obvious that these past few months have been full of nearly inescapable anxiety, uncertainty, and palpable tension, buried underneath the smoke and mirrors of multiple agendas from everyone with skin in the game. Yes, the bombardment by special interests trying to control the narrative can feel like you're being force-fed ads clockwork orange style in the Times Square of propaganda, but what else is new? Meanwhile, the masses take the bait and suit up to support the political teams that got us in this mess just to argue over the color of the cloth that will cover the casket at the end of Empire. And if you haven't been working to cure your system addiction, the end of Empire can very much feel like the end of everything. 
because there are ways to keep your sanity in insane times, ways to keep your ship afloat as the storm rages on, and ways to bid farewell to familiar but not so friendly institutions as they fade out of view. It's their funeral, folks, not ours. The territory is changing at a rapid pace, and thus we need a new map. And with us today is my favorite chaos cartographer and magical map maker, the great Gordon White. As most higher side chatters know by now, Gordon is the witty wizard cooking up all good things at runesoup.com. He also authored Starships to restore the magical context needed to understand our ancestors and the structures they left behind. The Chaos Protocols to get you working on the very armor needed for the times ahead, and the ebook Pieces of Eight if you need some ritual references while your iPad can still get a charge. The Wizard from Down Under, Captain of the SS Chaos, Hulk Smasher of the Materialist Worldview, and my magical mentor, Gordon, my friend. Welcome back to the higher side. I just love those introductions. <laughs> uh, just get better and better at this because this is lucky number seven. Yes. In terms of, yeah. <laughs> and how many times has Nick Redfern been on? I miscounted when I told you, but his most recent one was seven also. <sighs> right. Okay. I know. He, he I know. writes a book every 45 minutes. How can I, how can I compete <laughs> with that? Right. It's tough. Yeah. <laughs> Either way, I'm still happy to have you here. I mean, nobody at this point has talked more on this show except me. And I think that's a beautiful thing. Also, Nick Redfern, a lot of those early shows are before they were two hours. So time-wise, you'll still have him beat even when he's on eight. Yeah. Well, you make sure he knows that. <laughs> I will. But man, you've been a good friend and you've given me a lot of great advice, not just in magic, but in life. And, um, you know, I'm just excited to have you come out to the whale's vagina in just a few short months while my special lady and I bound ourselves by the rings of Saturn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Conspiracy podcast event of the season. <laughs> yeah, maybe. But um, I will say, you know, I don't understand the skepticism that often crops up when I bring you back here. Your message is always pretty positive, and we talk about so many things, but I think almost all of it falls under the umbrella of constructing better models for understanding reality based on the available data and taking back the power that we've given away or had taken from us. I'm sure you experienced this in many other areas of life, but why do you think the guard seems disproportionately high for wizardry and magic talk in 2017? I, I don't know if it's if it's moved necessarily that much in 2017. I think you end up with a lot of competing different narratives in in a sort of alternative interpretation or kind of conspiracy world, and it doesn't really hold water for very long. There's a kind of default suspicion of these things, as, as so many people have sort of tumbled out the bottom of a Protestant Christian worldview. And so there's a, there's a confusing suspicion of both the Freemasons and the Vatican, which is fine because, you know, you, you end up with different power players through history. But it's like, well, if you're anti them, are you pro them? Uh, and <laughs> And that kind of, I think, gets a little bit in the way of looking at it. But particularly from a chaos magic perspective, there is a focus on or priority on solving things so that's we, we've discussed this before when it comes to my you know because i'm a thc plus member and long-term interest in conspiratainment mm -hmm. i am looking for and i make no apologies for it i'm sort of looking for ways of improving my understanding of the world for just general life improvement. I don't think uh, a, a lot of people might be using conspiratainment as a sort of Sudoku replacement where they want to, you know, solve something, but then what happens next? Like once you've solved it, what what is the thing that happens? And that's entirely valid. Like people are allowed to have 
different areas of, of thought or discourse or just general interest. From a magic perspective, in a chaos magic one, there's something else to it, which is, well, clearly there are players and things going on in the world, not in a necessarily selfish way, but what does that mean for me? Or how do I position myself because I'm not interested in dying just yet? How do I position myself so that I am best arranged for the positive things that are coming and sort of have reduced exposure to the negative things? And I think that's a big part of it as well. Yeah, I get that. I mean, I've heard you say that you can't solve your way to a better world. And this was kind of in the context of 9-11. But the point is, we know what we need to know. It's not really about, was it nanothermite? Was it directed energy weapons? You know, some of these things, to an extent, are unknowable. But we know what's important, which is who we can't trust and what was a manipulation. And yeah, just because you get that answer doesn't really change the actual world you're living in. No, the... The steps you take as a result of working out that the official conspiracy is flawed, to put it mildly, the steps you take are the same, whether or not it's whether or not I, the thermite one is wrong, but like whether or not it's the thermite one or directed energy weapons or what have you, the steps you take are the same because otherwise you're faced with the situation and it happens to people. It's it's typically the first kind of red pill. One, do you think you're the person to solve it? And two, once you've solved it, what do, what do we do? March on the White House, you know? <laughs> right, right. And I also think people have very knee-jerk reactions right now when they hear just certain words and phrases, whether it's privilege or Pepe or according to NASA. And if they even get a whiff of an ideology that isn't theirs, they just shut down or even attack, which is kind of unfortunate because... All we have is the numbers. So if we force ourselves into smaller and smaller boxes, we're really in trouble. And anyone who has a different take on things is not always a government shill. And you don't have to agree with everything a person says to like them. And it kind of seems like we've forgotten that lately. We have. And it's a it's an understandable psychological reaction. People's worldviews are matching what's actually going on in the world less and less. And the psychological reaction when that happens is to put walls up and, and to be hostile. And it's actually a very artificial and difficult thing to do because it goes against human psychology to be open to new information, to be open to ideas you don't like or people you would otherwise disagree with. It's actually a difficult thing to do. And in a world that's kind of, you know, dialing up the heat, that gets more and more difficult. And so you have increasing polarization and atomization of people who may or may not benefit from, you know, engaging and speaking with each other because you kind of end up with, it's the same thing happening to everyone, right? So that's where I think people have to sort of consciously do it. And everyone has that first knee-jerk reaction of like, oh, I kill you if you, you know, disagree with you, one, don't agree 100%. Yeah, uh, that is a great point and a good explanation for the psychology of it. I mean, when Austin was here, we talked about astrology and the space weather being all about walls this next cycle. And we were thinking, you know, Trump's border wall, but maybe beyond that, there's a little more nuanced understanding that psychological walls apply as well. The wall and the boundary, and obviously this kind of relates to 
the story of magic and in particular the story of Hermes who, you know, in, in Greek systems in, in his many forms is more or less responsible for it. Same thing with Thoth, which is the Egyptian Hermes, right? Is the god of borders and walls and between spaces and way markers. And it is at that psychological edge. Like the, the wall is the fundamental psychological and political concept. If you have and it's not just, although it's currently being expressed to do with, you know, immigration and physical walls, but the wall and the idea of difference and uh, you, you can see walls in discussions of single payer healthcare. Like, well, why would I pay for you? Like it's, it's letting people in and out. And it's this really challenging, big psychological concept. The wall is everywhere. Mm hmm. Yeah, man. And because of the distrust that's out there, a lot of people have made very black and white conclusions about who they're going to trust, what information they're going to take in, what data they're willing to consider. And that's basically putting yourself in a bubble, which is one extreme that has its own problems. But you do have to have some type of filter. And it's really hard sometimes to discern which data to trust and which to discard as propaganda or disinfo because these institutions are so long standing. And you can usually look at a few things that are going to make you skeptical. But you can't throw everything out entirely. You can't be anti-intellectual. So what helps you decide what data to consider and, and what to not give as much credence to? It kind of comes back to what we were saying about 9-11. You, you basically need to stay in a permanent state of meta-analysis rather than detail analysis. So you need to look at a, a thing or, or a cluster of ideas and generally think, well, which direction is this pointing? Is it pointing in that direction or that direction? And make the decision up there, bearing in mind that you're making it on kind of underlying data that is, what, at least 60% compromised? Hmm. So it's about spending more time at the next layer up. At the moment, one of the things that's helped for this, I, I started almost a year ago, a weekly newsletter called The All Red Line, which is a sort of weekly geopolitical analysis. And funnily enough, the weekly publication, rather than chasing, because obviously I write multiple blog posts a week, rather than chasing the individual reaction, particularly in today's world, where you have flip-flops over Assad can stay, Assad can go, whatever, on literally a, a, on an overnight basis, you get whiplash from doing that. But being forced on a weekly publication basis to sort of step back and look at it has been quite good training. And I wonder if that's not a psychological shortcut for people is they, one, you need to kind of, everyone needs to go on a news diet anyway, <laughs> but also kind of commit to yourself that you're going to only form a opinion of this, however tentative, on a weekly basis, rather than chasing every little firecracker of info and disinfo throughout the week. Mm, that is, yeah, obviously a great point because you'll never be done and you'll be getting jerked around all over the place. And I think that's the point. Like, I actually think that's what's going on. If you look at what happened during the election, you see two different mind control or manipulation modes being tested and then, and then put to full flight. And on the sort of war party side, you have, which we both experienced, of course, the, the actual physical algorithmic manipulation of social media. Yeah. But on the other side, you have, well, let's see how bullshit works. Let's see what making a completely wrong statement that I know to be completely wrong, China invented climate change or, or whatever it happens to be. Let's see what happens dropping these chaos bombs that I know to be wrong. And it's really, really interesting. The, the goal is the same, right? The goal is to sort of gaslight a population towards seeing the world the way you want to see it. And now, now both are in play, right? So now we, <laughs> now we have 
the deliberate use of things that people know to be incorrect to be used to kind of shape a discussion in the approximate direction one wants it to go. And we still have the, you know, full-blown algorithmic manipulation of, of social discourse. So we're, we're kind of in a world where if you chase these firecrackers, you are the, the, the platform upon which the mind war is waged. Right. Yeah, you're playing right into the, the goal there. And these are strange times. I mean, even most alternative media has turned a weird corner where Alex Jones and Red Ice and a lot of researchers I've interviewed recently have been critics of the system and its players historically, but they got behind a reality show billionaire and then he won. And now, as you say, we live in a world where Alex Jones has a White House press badge. I mean, how would you tweak the roadmap for, say, like a conspiratorial audience like this one? I mean... It's just hard because even researchers who are twice my age are in some weird way supporting the president for the first time ever. Yeah, that is surprising. I think it's there. There are a couple of things you need to do. And, and I guess one of the other sort of hacks or best practices that include holding off and making an opinion until, you know, a, a week has passed. The other one is to have a better meta model of what's going on. And one of the things that's particularly interesting over the last 15 years, you know, I'm, I'm very into is cycle models and, and cycle interpretations. Now, I have a preference for Martin Armstrong's one, but the, like the thing is, any of them more or less will work. Bannon likes the sort of fourth turning one. You have ones that are based on like the decline and fall of, of Roman civilization and so on. But you have this idea over the last 15 years that the world appears to be described better in a cycle model than a things are getting better linear progression model that you otherwise would have found in the West, and particularly in the 90s and, you know, Bill Clinton and Tony Blair and so on. So it's almost like you need an improved metaphysics before you want to go and, and look at or analyze or engage with either mainstream or alternative interpretations, because with an improved metaphysics, particularly a cycle model one, we're at a point where the sort of quality of the discourse declines. This is what happens at this point in the cycle, right? So one of the things Morris Berman, who I also really like, but is a bit more of a declinist than I am, who's written books about, you know, the end of the American empire and so on. He says at the end of an empire, people always make the wrong decisions. So people make the wrong decision consistently, and that's either part of it or it's just a thing that happens. And you have to look at alternative media and go, this is surprising. I wonder if they're not caught in if you if you wind back the clock five years, the very idea that the InfoWars crowd would have a president on <laughs> well, it wasn't president at the time, but the, would have people for whatever reason giving them like in the White House giving them information. At some point you would have hoped they would have thought, well hang on, I've just had a whole career talking about how information that comes from power is by definition compromised. And I don't think I don't think a lot of people who are into this or who are following this are aware that that's still the case, even if you happen to like the person who's currently in the White House more than the other choice. That's still in play. Yeah, man. I, and I also heard recently like collapse happens fairly quickly because of a, a normalcy bias. Like an example would be, we know politicians lie to us, but we still listen and we still clap and we get a bumper sticker and we just kind of pretend it doesn't happen. We pretend everything's 
coming up roses. And then all of a sudden the sky falls, the bottom drops out. And it's because we didn't see those warning signs or we weren't paying attention to them or we're just in denial about them. Yeah. And again, we come back to sort of classic human psychology there and and the idea of I mean, I talk about this in pieces of eight. If you don't have your own metaphysics, you're you're running on someone else's and that's not a good place to be. This is a difficult thing to do. It's why people don't do it. Hmm. And and I think what I think what we will see over the course of this year is the fallout from people mistaking two things that that I think is is very dangerous. Like if you if you watch the election and and sort of the whole thing and we did and we spoke about it, it was quite clear that whatever the secret powers are behind Trump are, they have a different agenda to the secret powers behind, you know, Clinton and the war party. I think that's observable in what we saw last year. And even to some extent, what we're seeing this year, it does not necessarily follow that that makes them the good guys. And that's the kind of other shoe I think to drop for alternative media. And and it makes me suspicious, mildly suspicious that that isn't by design, that they've managed to scoop up what was a very horizontal method of communication and kind of tip it behind <laughs> tip it behind the president, which the, the previous president didn't have. Well, that's another thing I've been thinking about lately, because there has been so much talk about coups and counter coups and infighting among deep state factions during this whole election cycle. But I've learned a little bit about Jared Kushner recently, and that has made me wonder if we don't have a two puppets, one hand situation because he's Trump's son-in-law. He has a project that was funded by George Soros, apparently. I mean, who knows what information to trust? But apparently this is the guy who's kind of the liaison to those old elite powers. And he, apparently also is why Bannon was kicked off the national security team. And that's what started this whole airstrikes in Syria thing and dropping the Moab on uh, Afghanistan. So I'm not sure. What are your thoughts on Jared Kushner and that possibility that maybe he's been there all along with Pence also in a position as a plan B? It it may well be. I don't know if that's enough to go on, given that removing Bannon from the National Security Council, which I think is in many ways good. I mean, he's he's a blogger and, and he's sitting there <laughs> with, you know, admirals. That was part of a sequence of events that also included things like having uh, Nunes recuse himself from the Reds under the bed Russia witch hunt. So there was a sort of sequence of events that started the Friday before with Tillerson saying Assad can stay. And then all of a sudden you get this dramatic rearrangement and suddenly Trump is bombing Syria. Right. So and, and NATO can stay and, and, and all this other stuff that's going on. And yes, I know that the Trump apologists say that this was all timed around the Chinese visit to Mar-a-Lago, and that may well have been opportune timing. But the, the trouble with that is that those sort of state visits are booked multiple months in advance, and you have a kind of turnaround in the space of a week of Assad can stay to let's bomb Assad. Uh-huh. So this is sort of my point, which is there is clearly a faction behind Trump, whether or not it's currently in charge, that doesn't see the world the way McCain does, right? So... One, that doesn't mean they're the good guys. And two, it's not obvious to me that they're in charge. And and I wonder if, like, if, if, if we're looking at how to describe this, if we're looking at ulterior motives for the dramatic escalation of war around the world, so Syria and North Korea, although I view the North Korea thing as good, 
one of the a side effects of that has been to increase the demand for long treasuries so that the, the actual yield on long treasuries has dropped, which is quite good coming into the end of April when you have to have a debt ceiling discussion. And me thinking that he's a CEO, he's got to run a P&L. What he's sort of done is force half the house to say he's doing the right thing and improve the demand for US debt heading into a debt ceiling discussion. And the bit of information that I think people missed this week is that they sort of tabled what they'd like to do for the budget in 2018. And it's the biggest reorganization of the federal government in the history of the United States. So if you're looking at someone playing a medium-term game here, he has got a whole bunch of people in advance behind him raising the debt ceiling. He's improved demand for US debt, and he's kind of launched what he almost like a white paper, what they want to do next year in the complete reorganization of the US. So is that the, the faction behind Trump? And does that mean no one would argue that, uh, you know, there needs to be a reorganization of how tax money and, and, and the federal government runs? No one would argue against it. But are these the people you want to give free reign to when, when it comes to having that discussion? And these are the things that I think over the next three quarters of the year, people who have maybe been knee-jerk pro-Trump because they were anti-empire, and I fully get that, are going to need to adjust their opinion because you're, you're dealing it's game of thrones like th there are no good guys yeah amen and you're right i do see also that tug of war and the, the back and forth on some of those positions another thing i thought was kind of disturbing and unprecedented was um it seems like when trump was asked about did he approve that bomb he just kind of is like i let the generals do whatever they want and it does seem like he's kind of given carte blanche to the military industrial complex to act autonomously and that's a little weird that's ceo talk like he's actually to give him his credit when we're talking about the use of bullshit he's unbelievably good at it <laughs> like he really is i know that that dilbert guy thinks he essentially has magical powers i wouldn't take it that far but he's very good like you know as we say he's a reality tv show billionaire so he's actually very good at, at doing this and when a ceo says that what he's saying is if it goes well, I'm taking credit for it. <laughs> if it doesn't, it was their fault. Yeah. So it's one of those things you kind of got to read between the lines on. And again, it's an argument for staying at that meta level of analysis, which is keeping everything you know, at arm's length or, or don't try as best you can. And I appreciate because it, how difficult this is to kind of attenuate your emotional reaction on a daily basis and then sort of take a deep breath at the end of the week and go, right. Right. So what has even happened? This is coming back to the cycle model thing. Here we are at this point in the timeline, however way you want to call it. And a week is a long time. And a week is a very long time in the amount of just stuff that happens backwards and forwards and bombs and people coming, you know, and WikiLeaks revelations and all the rest of it. If if you try to follow that on on a daily basis, I think you're going to get caught in the energy of that fourth turning and and it's maybe not a good place to be it's all it's either like being the wave or riding the wave yeah i mean great point you're talking about meta-analysis and i'm bringing up these like hyper narrow details that probably aren't all that important well they are but like there there is a different perspective that happens when you view these things in aggregate and that's that's what we have to do because there's just kind of no way right now of getting to the bottom of it, like kind of drilling down and going, okay, well, that's what's going on. I'll, I'll adjust accordingly. You, you, you're not really, we're not really there. Mm -hmm. And to, uh, 
to talk about that point in the timeline where we do everything wrong, I did a universal basic income show, which would be one of those wrong answers to the right questions that you write about. And I see why you're not a fan, because it reinforces centralized control of the system. And I do agree, that is bad. I just worry that anything beyond that is kind of outside of our grasp, but we do need less centralization, not more. How can we move the needle in that direction, despite the best efforts of the empire? Well, again, on a metaphysical level, it's it's in some sense ending. The, the, the way that the empire is funded and the way that it's organized will be gone by 2030. Like, it, we don't know how, but this, you know, bond selling, raising money to pay for things that are overpriced because that money goes straight into the back of private contractors and kind of keeping the whole thing afloat by having the, the greatest military force the world has ever seen. That whole scam, if you want, is ending. It may not end rapidly, but it's it's on the way out. So what that means operationally for people is from the top down, I think you're going to get like a run at full totalitarianism, but from the top down, it's not going to work between now and 2030. So we, it won't actually happen. Those kind of quote-unquote new world order plans will be dead on arrival. In the meantime, there is the opportunity for us to like personally increase local participation because that will, and that can be at a government level, that can be food and knowledge sharing with neighbors, that can be all the rest of it that allows the kind of structure that is if not anti-fragile, then at least robust to make it through the transition. And I think that's a big part of it. It would also be good if we can actually start talking about, now that we have the data for it, why like quantifiably decentralized models work better. And it's funny because we have the data for it now, but you, you kind of see that idea at the back of the formulation of the United States as a spell in the first place, which is tyranny accumulates at more or less the same rate of centralization the reason you know washington and, and new york is such cesspits now and london was the same in the 1890s because that's where the power and the money are and i think when you kind of have that as a sort of yardstick it it allows you to go okay well what can be decentralized and it's almost algorithmic or boolean where you say military can this be decentralized no okay that stays there Healthcare funding, can this be decentralized? As a matter of fact, yes. And you can kind of pull that down to sort of state and local levels and sort of let things fall to the maximum possible level of decentralization so that when the inevitable corruption happens, you don't capture or break an entire system. And it sort of functions like a biosphere then. And I think there's a sort of interesting metaphysics to that that we should have people maybe more aware of. And, and yeah, you have to ask yourself whether... Washington, as it is currently arranged, has the competency to deliver a UBI in a non-totalitarian way. And I don't think anyone listening to this show would say yes to that. There are other opportunities. The, the, the way to do it, again, this comes back to, okay, currency creation, can that be decentralized? And the answer to that is, of course, yes as well. And we're seeing kind of tentative versions of it. So you could, in theory, have localized UBIs if you were interested in having a weaker currency than your neighbor and thus having, and I mean on like a region by region basis. These are all thought experiments that make you kind of realize, actually, this is going to work better, isn't it? Than, than having this sort of wish for, I guess, replacing a current system of near totalitarianism with full totalitarianism. I don't feel like that's the solve to near totalitarianism. It's kind of like, you know, adding more fire to a burning building. 
Mm-hmm. I definitely get what you're saying. And the healthcare issue is sort of like a UBI and the fact that it is a big centralized system or that's the way it's discussed. And that really isn't the way we should go about it. As you've said, we need 10,000 different answers to healthcare, not one. And I think that's a good way to say it. Well, what we need. So at the moment, and by the way, I consider single payer to be an inevitability. It's it's sort of the only way a developed country can continue. And interestingly, I think it's about 58% of the US. So that means quite a chunk of Republicans are on board with it. And in sense, that's broadly good, but don't for a second think that that will in any way kind of improve the healthcare options that are available. All it will do is mean that if you get sick, you don't go bankrupt. And that's fucking great. And funnily enough, I'm surprised the Republicans haven't made an economic argument for single payer, which is it's really bad for the economy to have thousands of people go bankrupt because they have, you know, a minor heart problem. <laughs> I, I truly do not understand it. But what with a centralized system, and we've seen this, we've seen it with vaccines and psychiatric drugs and everything else, you only need to bribe three to five people to cause the deaths and, and, and chronic and degenerative diseases of tens of thousands, if not millions of people. You really only need to bribe, you know, CDC, FDA, whatever at the top, and you see them revolving door into and out of private pharma companies and into and out of government positions. Now, if you run that, if you do a sort of modified Canadian model where healthcare funding is decentralized down to a state level, now you have to bribe 150 rather than three people. Mm. And you probably will get 80 of them, 90 of them, who knows? But you kind of see where the centralization and power corrupts. And, uh, and that's the bit that we can now prove in, and this is a new thing. So it's, it's all right that people don't understand this. It's really only been in the last 15 years that we've had demographic and economic data, and I mean physical data and you know access to computing power to crunch these numbers, we can kind of demonstrate there are some things that work better than others. And that's one of them. Like it, you, you get a sort of inevitability of this corruption and power. And you know, it, in some sense, in most sense, these discussions are metaphysic because we don't get to make these decisions and the world's gonna do what it's going to do. But it's almost part of building yourself a coherent map for your own life to to sort of solve those things for yourself, to sort of go, okay, well, if I did happen to be emperor of the world, how would I arrange it? And there's a lot of kind of personal real life benefit that can come out of thinking that way. But I'm I'm sort of hesitant to go into those discussions because as we were chatting about a couple of days ago, we seem to have replaced real world improvements that we can make with arguing on the internet about our preferred utopias. <laughs> and that's a really 19th century way of thinking about things as if, if, as if you can kind of arrive at a proper functioning of the world by debate. And, and it doesn't like, there's no way, even if you win the debate of getting that to actually match the physical world. And I think a lot of what you see from an argument perspective online is that people have organized around a very specific utopia and are defending it. They're defending it because anyone who disagrees with their version of a utopia is the enemy. Right, right. And that was going to be the next thing I was going to ask you about, because things like universal basic income or national health care, we could say those are the wrong answers for people who are left side oriented. But what about those wrong answers coming from those on the right? And this gets into that idea of a utopian 
anarcho-capitalist model, which is very popular right now, but it is more of a thought exercise than it is any kind of practical thing. Yeah, well, it's it's right wing communism because the two kind of loudest flavors are anarcho capitalist on the right and anarcho communist on the left, and and so we sort of put anarcho like diet in front of you know a brand here, and and the trouble is, and I am one hundred percent in full agreement with the idea that the world could do with some fixing like things aren't great like i'm 100 aligned with both sides mm -hmm. from a point of view which is like i think we could run the world a bit better i think we could participate with each other a bit better than we currently are and that's completely like 100 no no disagreement here the trouble is to implement either of them and this comes back to what i was saying before like your soul for a near totalitarian situation is totalitarianism. And, and you know, the obvious example is going left. You go, OK, well, you know, the, the communist, the, you can put an arco in front of it if you want, but you end up with a system that killed more than 100 million people in the last 100 years and kind of delayed innovation and, and you know, all that kind of stuff. So the, the kind of left version of it is you need to you need gulags and, and, and forced marches and all this kind of stuff to get to the left utopia. And funnily enough, you kind of need it on the right as well because you need to force people into a world. So you need a totalizing rule to force people into a world of no rules. Yeah. And goes, so how are, you, how, do you, how are you doing that? How, how are you actually getting people into a world of no rules? And the answer is, well, obviously, I will use totalizing force. And you think, well... Doesn't that kind of short circuit what you were saying? And and it's fine as an idea. So utopias were thought experiments. They were never maps. And that goes all the way back to Atlantis, where the, the presence of Atlantis in Timaeus is there to make a point about governance systems in Greece. And you get the same thing with where we get the word utopia from, which is Thomas More. Like these thought experiments to make you – they're sort of moral lessons – for how you could be living better now rather than haha we should absolutely do all of this and and people who disagree will be crushed so i think there's a couple of things and it sort of gets back to what we we're saying before about people being the world is changing so much and is is kind of shit for a lot of people that they they find what they perceive to be the answer and then dig in and defend it and as a result of doing that, coming back to borders, you're, you're pushing everyone outside of this border you've just created and made them the enemy and the reason why you're experiencing such anxiety and pain and, and lack of opportunity. And there's a, just a – it's a mind game. It's genuinely a mind game. You've fallen into a mind trap. And I think that's part of the challenge is sort of separating the fact that a utopia is a, is a moral psychological lesson rather than – a map to full-blown totalitarianism. Mm -hmm. And I think that's great because I did early on in this want to try to critique both sides a little bit, try to rattle both cages and point out exactly these sorts of things because there is a lot of soapboxing going on right now and everyone's attitude is that the top-down system overhaul will work if it's just done my way. But it's centralization and globalization that create the conditions for people at the top to take advantage like they do. And you have a great line on the blog where you say something to the effect that decentralization spreads out the risk of cronyism because cronyism and abuse of power have always been there. Let's move towards a way of life where when it happens, it just takes down a regional school board rather than the richest country on the planet. 
And I think that's a great way to put it. And it is really the only insurance policy against a system of powerful puppet masters. Yeah. And this kind of comes back to, as I'm saying, the formulation of America is a spell to begin with. If you look at the reasons why they had like, you know, OK, let's not have a standing army. Why? It's like, well, because when you have a standing army, people use it. And you can kind of see occasionally attempts in history, rarely, to deal with the fact that when you have things like crowns and thrones and navies, you get corruption and tyranny. Now, the American formulation of it a couple of centuries ago is obviously quite exclusionary. It was, you know, white males, essentially. But the idea is actually quite good. So the America is a kind of legal construct around a transcendental object, which is the American. So the idea of pursuit of happiness and free speech and all these things are transcendental and come from God. They aren't conferred by the state. And that's a kind of really 18th century way of looking at the sort of same challenge we're looking at now, which is how do we organize politics on a group level and metaphysics on an individual level to maximize, you know, opportunity and general happiness and health and less shitty lives for people. And it's kind of a thing we have to keep reminding ourselves. And that was at a different point in the cycle. So the best example of why people are yelling at each other about utopian worldviews and, and calling everyone who disagrees with their particular utopia the enemy if you look at the transition to an industrial economy in the 19th century, this is where we get Marxism. This is more or less where you get anarchism. This is where you get a complete change in how monarchies in Europe work. The, the same thing happened because they're dealing with one of these sort of turns, one of the sort of points in the cycle where you have a sort of major transition. And we're doing the same thing now. And I think there's an opportunity to do it slightly better with an increased I guess, historical perspective. Mm -hmm. Cheers to that. And let's get into some uh, real advice now that we've torched a couple of sacred cows. I also want to ask you about this post of yours, Black Pearl of Great Price, The Magical Significance of Captain Jack Sparrow, where you say that the Pirates of the Caribbean films in aggregate are the best depictions of Western magic ever committed to celluloid. And you talk about Jack Sparrow being... One of the best pop culture examples of the trickster since Bugs Bunny and a good model for navigating chaotic times, which we seem to be in. Tell us a little bit about this model. Yeah, I just want to, um, if, if people haven't read Rune Soup before, I say things like that. And, <laughs> and I say them because it, you know, it wakes people up as they're reading the post. But there's been a, a Pirates of the Caribbean motif for years. And what I essentially mean by that, and I think if you look at captain jack's purpose as in from a screenwriting perspective and he says this in the first film when he says what it, what a ship is and he says it's not a sail and a keel and a hull and and so and that's what a ship needs what a ship is is freedom if you look at this archetype he is moving through the world towards increased freedom opposite that and you kind of get this in particular in the the sort of middle films, and less so in the first one. Opposing that, you have the East India Company, which is sort of the perfect villain because it is it's centralization and disenchantment, because it is a corporation that it's a state corporation. So it's it's the worst of the state, in this case the crown, and and the worst of corporate behavior. And it is this sort of totalizing sameness that is 
removing the freedom and taste and color and it's represented by things like magic and and you know funny pirates and and the pirates are interesting because they're different races different genders all, all this kind of stuff so the pirates sort of represent the organic and the analog and 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 the chaotic in the benign sense like that's what they are and it's by the way not an exact match of this this is not a historical documentary this is you know how these things work so because what you're dealing with is a metaphysical discussion there and what's interesting about captain jack is that he's and why i use the bugs bunny example is he navigates a world of increasing totalitarianism and decreasing enchantment in a very probabilistic way so he has a goal at the end which in the first film is getting his ship back but he doesn't overplan the steps the steps in between then and and where he is are not known so he kind of manages that on a probabilistic individual basis pointing in one direction and that's really that's very good that's that's getting on for Nassim Taleb right because in some sense you will or in most senses you don't know what's going to happen and a lot of the sort of psychological pain people experience is because they think they know what's going to happen and it doesn't and so Captain Jack has this sort of freewheeling way of going on a heuristic or Boolean decision basis. Does this next step get me closer or further away from my goal? And he takes that one. And the, the famous sort of beginning sequence in the, in the first film where he shows up on, on a sinking little boat and then, you know, leaves on the second fastest ship in the Caribbean. And in the meantime, the town's been bombed and people have fallen off cliffs and he's been in and out of jail and so on. And it, it all starts with, he shows up with absolutely nothing and leaves with, he want, with what he wants because of that kind of thinking and decision-making. And Bugs Bunny does that. Bugs Bunny's very much in the moment. That demonstrates the confidence or mastery of chaos that the trickster represents. And as a result, he's kind of like a really good metaphor for, or a really good way of thinking about in the sense of having a bracelet that says, what would Jack Sparrow do? He's a really good, good way of thinking about what you can do on an individual basis and how you navigate things like totalitarianism and disenchantment and so on to get to the goal you want, to get to your Black Pearl. Mm-hmm. Well said. I mean, it is such a, a great attitude, this practicality moment by moment, this ultimate like flexibility and fluidity. And that's very appropriate for rapidly changing times. Yeah, it is, because we don't know what the intervening, between, as I said, between now and 2030, the US will not be the preeminent economic power in the world. That, that will change. We will have different applications of, well, we'll certainly have a digital currency. We will probably have a modified UBI, which will begin with like a bundling up of um, all kind of state wealth transfers into one thing and it'll build from there and you kind of look at the steps between now and getting to a more multipolar world there's the risk of multiple wars there's you you have to be honest with yourself is washington the best people are, are they going to deliver all of these things without sticking the landing and the answer is probably no so you don't know in which way these things are going to happen but in the meantime you probably most people listening to this plan to be alive in 2030 so what do you do and, and how do you navigate an unknown terrain? And there is something in the perpetual optimism of a kind of trickster way of thinking things, which is I will eventually win. And it's not in a malicious, villainous way. It's I'll eventually win, but it's like, oh, now I'm in jail. Now I'm here. Now I'm here. Like, this is the thing that's happening now. 
reset the decision what gets me closer what gets me further away and it's just a it's a fascinating thing to watch and just if people are listening to this going hmm, i haven't seen it in a number of years and i recall the middle ones being shit <laughs> there's a trick particularly as the new films coming out as to how to watch it and you give yourself a weekend and you watch the first one on the friday night because it's essentially standalone the only way the middle two make sense is if you watch them back to back so that's what you do on the saturday and then you can watch the final one which is almost its own standalone on the sunday but you can if you chunk them in the whole weekend <laughs> i guarantee you they will make sense and i guarantee you i will make sense <laughs> fair enough i'll add it to the list so i can uh make it seem like i'm doing something when really i'm just facilitating laziness but yeah you can call it research yeah <laughs> right <laughs> so when we do look at the geopolitical chessboard right now Power does seem to be shifting, and I wanted to ask you about China because you've talked about the economic might shifting over there in the years to come. And they recently announced they would be opening up their securities and insurance companies to foreign ownership, which seemed quite different from their usual style. Kind of struck me as it might be a big deal. What are your thoughts on that? What does that move signal to you? Anything real significant? It's When you're dealing with China, they will say things like that, but you're still not going to get, even if with majority foreign ownership, you're, you're still playing China's game. You're like, if you're, if you're buying into anything that's Chinese finance, it's, it's much like the US one. It's, it's completely monitored. When they say things like that, it will be a precursor to increasing Eurasian economic integration. So we will open it up to foreigners. Oh, look, Iran and Russia and India and so on have, have bought in. So it, it's a way of kind of, almost building like a privatized EU. If you look at the infrastructure projects and the access to capital and the redundancy in access to capital that they're building in Eurasia at the moment, this is that next step. And broadly speaking, it's good. Broadly speaking, economic integration of Eurasia without war, without the kind of totalizing Anglo-American approach, which is we will economically integrate you into ours by taking all your resources and, and giving you dollars and, and propping up dictators. There is a way of doing it that will hopefully kind of result in the dramatic economic and, and sort of cultural improvement of the lives of billions of people. So we can kind of cross our fingers on it. But when China says things like that, and they, they're playing this game, I've been thinking about it. Remember, I guess it would have been end of 2014. When the Rockefeller Trust divested itself of all its hydrocarbon assets, and which wasn't like Rockefeller, but just the trust, divested itself of hydrocarbon assets. And then because we were kind of playing that shadow war with Russia, then oil tanked, expecting this would put the pain on Russia. Before that happened, earlier in the year, China and Russia cut a natural gas deal. It was about 20% below market. And everyone's like, oh, you know, Russia must be desperate. And then obviously the energy price crashed and suddenly that deal looked pretty good. You can kind of see that they're playing this medium term game of Eurasian economic integration. And because the Anglo-Americans are so schizophrenic about letting other people on the, at the big table, we're kind of missing one of the singular economic events in in the history of the planet by getting this wrong and i just think like they're playing they're playing a very medium term subtextual economic game that we're currently not participating in hmm. and you've alluded a couple times to the power going to china in 2030 that's coming from that martin armstrong model of cycles right 
Yeah, he has exactly 2032 is when China becomes the economic capital of the world in, in his cycle model. But the thing is, why I like it is that it's got some very interesting precision timing. But you don't need this sort of model that he spent hundreds of millions of dollars building to kind of see that that's going to happen approximately then, right? Funnily enough, talking to, speaking of Austin, Austin Kopic, we were talking about medium and long-term astrological cycles and something very similar kind of shows up in astrology. And just as a medium-term economic forecast, looking at where things are going, to hit around the 2030 mark seems like a reasonable thing to say. Right on. And I'm sure a lot of people are kind of um, freaking out about that a little bit, but you also talk about opportunities in knowing the proper landscape and then capitalizing. What kind of opportunities do you think there would be? Because I think a lot of people might feel like, well, I don't have the resources to really capitalize on anything when the general population is going to be losing a lot of their buying power. So what, where are the opportunities? I just want to talk about that freaking out thing. That does fascinate me when Americans freak out going from number one to number two economy <laughs> in the world. Like, relax. It doesn't mean, you know, it doesn't mean that there's no money. Well, there kind of is no money left in the US in a funny way, but right. like just in the middle class. It doesn't mean China has all the money and no one else has any of it. If you look at, say, you know, Europe does fine by not being, by no longer being the economic capital of the world. It's what happens. It's the, the thing that happens at this point in the timeline. So it doesn't mean America closes. But what it does mean is if you were looking for areas of medium-term growth, and it depends on where you are in your life and what you want to do with your life and so on, the sort of rise of Eurasia, of which China is the, is the largest economy, the rise of Eurasia is the economic event of your lifetime. Now, you can participate in that, but even if you don't, you still are because that is where your pension funds will be invested such you know if there are any left by 2030 your pension funds will be invested in the building of eurasia and so on so it's it's almost like you can't not take a position about what's going on and as a result step one is to kind of you don't need to go into detail on it but step one is to sort of know at a top level the economic shape of the world and and, and the more or less the direction it's heading because that has a flowdown effect into what it is you prioritize and whether you, if you want a high flying career and you're in your early twenties, then it's, you probably need to know a little bit more than if you're in your late forties and kind of saying, well, I just want to make sure I can retire and, and not have to like dumpster dive for food. So you need to know something different about it. And, and that's step one. Step two is more or less the same. And this comes back to the metaphysics of of having a global understanding but participating on an on an individual or local or family or or tribal group basis or whatever you want to call it because funnily enough even if we weren't at that migration point if you look at the direction of just developed economies in general food is going to get more expensive and of lower quality well-paying jobs are going to, you know, vanish, you know, steadily and then rapidly decline as as the rise of automation comes on. And all of a sudden, you're starting to look at things. Well, what are the things I can do about that? I can't participate in a robot war just yet. And that becomes a game of sort of radically reducing your operating costs, prioritizing your own health and nutrition. And that does mean growing things. This This all kind of falls together as the one medium-term strategy, which is even as a thought experiment, find out 
just in your head, what you could genuinely do to reduce your rent by 80%. And there are things you can do. They aren't palatable in, in a lot of cases. It's like, well, I suppose I could get three more flatmates. But those are the kind of ideas you need to start thinking. Not exactly that, but those are the kind of ideas you need to start thinking about because however this ends or however this migration goes, you're still going to need access to, particularly if you have children, access to nutritional food and some sort of kind of economic fallback as as the economy transitions into a largely automated one, which means, you know, if if people do work for other companies rather than themselves, and, you know, the majority of people do, have multiple incomes in the one house operating in different industries, multi-generational living. This is the kind of stuff we talk about in, in chaos protocols, which is what the entire rest of the world outside of the Anglosphere does right now. And it's what the Anglosphere did up until the 1950s. So we've had this 70-year guess that one family could keep three houses solvent. And that guess has turned out to be wrong. So the question is how you look at organizing your life. And funnily enough, since writing the book, and this is the bit I get, obviously, you know, people email or get in touch about it. The thing that I've delighted in the most is the different configurations of households. People have emailed in going, you know, I already do that. My favorite one was a divorced couple. Obviously, not all divorces can work like this, but a divorced couple who both like the husband and ex-husband and ex-wife have new partners and those partners have their own families. And they said, well, let's just all live in the one big house. So the, the, the kids of the original marriage are still living with both parents. Everyone gets on great. This big house, you have four adult incomes, you have access to healthcare, you have access to childcare, all this stuff. That's a miracle to me. And I appreciate not all divorces go like that. But uh, there are all kinds of different configurations of it. The idea that you have to have, like, if you look at a house and picture the inside of it, and it's a white man in a sweater carving a roast for his white family, like that's gone. That was a guess. That was a guess to sell dishwashers in the 60s, right? Uh, you just want the white genocide to take hold. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think that's the, it, it sounds radical or different, but it's not. It's, it's what we used to do. It's what we've done since caves. And there are opportunities like that, that we need to look at in addition to being willing to kind of move about the earth, which is a similar thing. Tyler Cowen, one of my favorite economists, has a new book out called The Complacent Class. And it's sort of like a mainstream economist version of the chaos protocols because he hits all the points that I did last year. Sorry, Tyler. And one of them is that Americans aren't moving as much. And, and by moving as much, I don't mean physical activity. I mean, they're not migrating towards economic opportunity. And that's a medium-term risk to kind of GDP and all this other stuff. But it also represents a surprising hack that you could if you're willing to move because fewer people are all of a sudden this area of opportunity opens up for you as well and so it, it's about that it's about kind of getting your head over at a, at a meta level world trends and that doesn't necessarily require figuring out who the secret powers are behind trump <laughs> you just kind of need to know the direction that you're going in and in, in a way that's a distraction it would be interesting to know, and it would be additional information, but even without it, you can kind of see the direction it's going. And so you have to kind of localize that down to your level and, and be willing to participate in kind of like a, a family and, and, and neighborly sense. I love it. I mean, yeah, maximizing optionality is the term I've heard you use before, but that very much is in line with Jack Sparrowing it. Yeah, absolutely. This is the world we live in. Mm-hmm. 
So now how about the pedophilia networks? I mean, we don't have to say Pizzagate because that's such a loaded term and I've already lost subscribers who have told me that they won't stand for it because those episodes are pro-alt-right and anti-gay. So let me ask a guy who's neither. I mean, pedophilia networks, I mean, they've been a main staple of the conspiracy-minded for a long time, well before Pizzagate, and a lot of people expected Trump to maybe do something about this for some reason. But have you looked at this saga? I mean, obviously you have, but where do you see it going? If you'd asked me a month ago, I would have said, I would say odds on 50, 55% that you would get further revelations. Now, to be, like to clarify, I, I agree completely. I, I think it's not even just uh, conspiratainment. The idea of child sex predators operating at the highest levels of government has been around for most of the 20th century. Like there were pedo scandals in, in 19th century Victorian London, right? So, and they, they recur, you have obviously the Franklin scandal and, and Jimmy Savile and, and basically any other day in Westminster. So it, it's clearly there, but if you're asking specifically, like, you know, let's just put it out there and say that pizza place probably has nothing to do with it. It's a separate thing to talking about the stuff that was found on Wiener's laptop. If you'd asked me a month ago as to whether it was going to come out, I would have said odds on. At the time, I would have thought it is the sword of Damocles that he's been using, and by he, I mean Bannon, to bring recalcitrant people into line. And that may yet be the case. It's just that if that was exclusively the case, I kind of feel like he would have got his healthcare changes through. So I don't know. I don't know at this point. I know that there patently is a pedophile network at the highest levels of power in the Anglo-American sort of sphere. I think that's a very reasonable thing to say. I don't know if they're going to be rounded up in the middle of the night because, and this kind of comes back to just because there are secret powers behind Trump doesn't mean he's the good guy. I don't know if that's going to happen. Bearing in mind, if it's as bad as you and I probably think it is, the house could be two-thirds empty. So if you were trying to do things like, whether you agree with it or not, tax reform and, and reorganize federal spending, it's probably easier to do with people in the house. And that is really gross. That's like a terribly cynical thing. It's the sort of decision I guess you'd expect them to make. That's a really gross thing to say because it means that you are – putting children at risk to get a policy across and letting criminals go free because of it. But I, I couldn't tell you anymore. Given how the last month has gone, who even knows? Right. Good stuff, man. So before we go, because we are up against one hell of a machine, what would you say is like a good mantra for modern times or even something to tape up on the bathroom mirror to bring us back to where we need to be among the constant pushing and pulling right now? Hmm, that's a good one. I would suggest very strongly that people, and like I mean this strongly enough, people download the Headspace app and, and, and the paid version of it and just kind of force yourself into a regular meditation regime because that appears to be the best cure for the sort of attacks on the proper functioning of your amygdala and the sort of rise in cortisol and everything that comes along with watching American news or being on Facebook or, or so on. There's something about it that is now essential not only to your long-term health, but your short-term 
clarity of thinking. And in terms of mantras or things to tape up somewhere, something along the lines of be humble in what you do and don't know uh, is is kind of it at the moment because the, the sort of short-term challenge is how angry people are at each other when the thing they're actually angry at, to my mind, that's the one enemy. Like if you look at the people who voted for Trump for anything other than racist reasons, and if you look at the people who are proper left, so not Hillary types, but people who are proper left, they're yelling at each other about the same thing, which is empire. And I just kind of wonder if that would be a good thing to remind people of, the sort of of meditation and, and be humble in what you do and don't know that's not a that's not saying be complacent that's saying be engaged but don't don't call each other the the berkeley thing on the weekend they're now both calling each other fascists and i'm like goodness (laughs) yeah yeah well wise words man and it is always a pleasure to have you here so glad we could do it again Uh, i always recommend your books chaos protocols in particular you also have a lot more going on at Rune Soup since we last spoke. I'm really enjoying those Q&As, and I'm still working my way through the Sigil course, but tell the people about all that new-new. Uh, yes, uh, we have RuneSoup has a premium members option now, where each quarter there is a full course on some component of magic. So the first one was Sigils, and a complete course in Sigil Magic beginning to end. It also has weekly video Q&As and, and other stuff and additional presentations like the ethnobotany presentation I gave in Micronesia earlier this year. But each quarter there is a full-blown beginning-to-end course on something to do with magic. And the one for this quarter is on the sort of history of the grimoires and how to use them. And it's $10 a month, which is so it's $30 a course, or you're paying for the membership and the courses are free or, or vice versa. But it's going really well. And uh, it's been one of the... I guess it's been the high point of my year, frankly, is the people have really kind of engaged with it. Their members are kind of taking it and running with it, and they have their own groups, and we're we're working on things. We're doing a remote viewing, like a group remote viewing experiment for premium members, which you can obviously participate in, and group prayer uh, tests and all that kind of stuff. So it's not just... You don't just join a website. It's it's a group of people, and they're, they're meeting up in Los Angeles and Manchester and and wherever. And it's just kind of – it's a time to to sort of find the others. And, and, and there is a kind of need, I think, now more than ever for people to assert sovereignty over their own kind of spiritual potentials, I guess. Yeah. Amen. And I, I think it's a beautiful thing. I'm glad you're doing that. Obviously, I do it. I think it's the – really the future of careers find what you have to offer and offer it and then people who find value in it will um throw you a bone or two for it and in that kind of model we can all kind of get through without the empire we'll see nice as long as we have a computer i guess yeah (laughs) it it works until it doesn't (laughs) amen so All right. Well, boom goes the dynamite. Always a pleasure. And I will see you out here in July. Now, you actually do have a a meat space thing planned when you're out here too, right? Yes, absolutely. So we will be doing, uh, this is Connor Habib and I will be doing an event in Los Angeles on Saturday, July 8th. We've just moved the venue because there will be, it's looking like there's going to be more people. Uh, There'll be a separate premium members event for premium members as well. But if you're interested, sign up to the newsletter or, or check out RuneSoup facebook page and and kind of stay in touch because this is going to be a real doozy there are other 
kind of fun and super intelligent guests that we've got that I can't really talk about yet. Oh, but it's just, it's going to be essentially kind of like why the occult and is is right for right now and sort of why you need it. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. And I'm looking forward to the wedding. Uh, well, that's great. I mean, I, I really hope I can uh, attend that event. But, you know, I got knots to tie and commitments to make for the rest of my life. Yeah, your excuse is, is legitimate. Everyone else is no. Right, right. I'll take it. Cool, man. Love you. Take care. All right, all right, all right, sweet baby Jesus. Gordon White once again, people. A bit more practical and down-to-earth than our typical conversations, but I hope it resonated with some people. I hope it was clear what we were trying to do or what I was trying to do, because my line of questioning was really about how I used to look at the world as people who buy into the left and right paradigm and the team sports mentality to politics, and then there are those who just see past that, but now it seems like there are people who buy into the mainstream left-right infighting, and even the alternative thinkers have been divided into extreme liberal socialists and extreme nationalist libertarian anarchists, whatever labels you want to use, but just more extreme versions of the same thing. As Gordon poignantly said, we're arguing about our preferred utopias on the internet. That just, boom, sums it up right there. So I hope this doesn't sound like a lecture because I think, or my hope is that a lot of people notice these changes too. And whether they've been able to put their finger on it or not, hopefully some of this episode wedges itself into a spot that has been vacant for a little while. And I sort of hope the Jack Sparrow template is useful. I think it is. It reminds me of a story. One thing Gordon and I have in common is we both wanted to be filmmakers when we were younger. He got further on that path than I did, but I was a big Kevin Smith fan. So one time, me and my buddy Kirk, we drove out to the college he was speaking at. And during the Q&A, I got on the mic and I asked Kevin Smith how to go from making little bullshit skits with your friends to really doing something you can make a living off of and be proud of. Because even back then, I knew I wanted out. But Kevin Smith said, it takes a reasonable amount of unreasonability. And he went on to explain, you got to take some risks that seem nuts and you have to keep moving forward towards the goal, and you have to have enough confidence to bet on yourself. For example, when he was making his first movie, Clerks, he took out a bunch of credit cards, and he wrote down that he made way more money than he actually did. He then made sure that he answered the work phone when they called, and then he lied to validate his own salary, and that is pretty nuts. That's not something specifically that anyone could recommend per se, but if you're going to take out a 30k loan for a car, why not for a chance at your dream life? And naysayers are always going to tell you how stupid that is. And for every person that does that and succeeds, there's thousands of people who try it and fail. And that may be true, but you have to know which one of those people you are. Do the Jack Sparrow. Go with the flow. Don't overthink things. Have goals. Work towards them. Best prepare yourself if things get rocky. Like we talked about, there are plenty of red flags to suggest that they will. Personally, I think about Kevin Kelly's 1,000 True Fans principle all the time, where he says, for your thing to become a sustainable career, you really only need 1,000 True Fans who will support you with about 50 bucks a year. We'll do that math. That's 50K. How many of us are even making 50k a year? And a lot of us are hating what we do every day. 
So I say, figure out your thing. Maybe you want to make 8-bit art coasters, or maybe you want to make a series of classes about something that's your passion and expertise, or maybe you want to paint people's pets as if they were human. Whatever it is, you owe it to yourself to try, because that day you realize is your last day with a boss is a beautiful moment that everyone should have. It's the true decentralizing of your income. You're not dependent on one guy, one company. It's the moment you realize that even though the education system was crafted to keep you as a cog in their machine, even though there are many debt traps to keep you in a place of servitude, even though you probably had to do it with very little guidance, you did it. And it's a beautiful thing. Because I have seen the promised land people, and it is far from perfect, but it ain't bad. But even things like cutting down your overhead and learning truly powerful permaculture techniques, things that a few generations ago were just par for the course, we got to get back to them. A lot of people want to tell us right now that the sky is falling, but not many are talking about how to get out of the way. So I hope we can have a little kumbaya moment, whether we think taxation is theft or nukes are real or aliens are demons, and just realize that despite what we think we know, what pieces of the puzzle that we think we fit into place, everyone is on a journey. And just being on it, just actually being interested in a show like this puts you in a very small niche, a group that should have more connective tissue than points of difference, right? Just broadly seeing unfairness, corruption, and tilted scales in the world and wanting to find our freedom and shake off the chains. We all want these same things, whether we think the earth is round, flat, or hollow. And flat earthers, can we just calm down a little bit with the globetard talk? You learned about this shit eight months ago on YouTube. Be a little less douchey about it. Really, that goes for everything. Be less shitty about everything. Almost everyone's dealing with high amounts of stress right now. Why add to it just to play into the puppet master's hands? So that's my two cents. We shouldn't just be sizing up everyone's beliefs on everything, searching for one area of difference and just attacking it over and over. But I'm glad we got to talk about some of this stuff. I don't think universal basic income is terrible, but it really shouldn't be what we sit and wait for. It might be a band-aid that a lot of us need, but... Maybe we just need to heal the underlying problem instead. We should decentralize all the things if we want to feel less pain when we have to dismantle corruption. Globalization, totalitarianism, international everything. It's how we got into this era of too big to fail. One of my favorite quotes from Andrew Jackson when he was trying to fight off the oily appendages of the banking vampires. Apparently he said, gentlemen... I've had my men watching you for a long time, and I'm convinced that you have used the funds of the bank to speculate and the breadstuffs of the country. When you won, you divided the profits amongst you, and when you lost, you charged it to the bank. You tell me that if I take the deposits from the bank and annul its charter, I shall ruin 10,000 families. And that may be true, gentlemen, but that is your sin. Should I let you go on, you will ruin 50,000 families, and that would be my sin. You are a den of vipers and thieves. I'm going to root you out. And whether that's a true quote or not, it does highlight exactly the problem of dismantling aspects of society that are corrupt but are so integrated that we depend on them in one way or another. There's short-term pain for medium and long-term freedom. 
But anyway, go see Gordon in L.A. in July if you can. That is such a rare opportunity. Also, sign up for his classes if you want to get your magic right. The Sigil course is great. Grimoires is next. Hopefully, you didn't think this episode was too practical or obvious or lame. If you did, you must have just missed the Plus Show because that's where we got into the weird stuff. We speculated on the heightened interest in Antarctica. Gordon talked about his fast and ways to live better in trying times, the important psychological distinctions between permaculture and prepping, the geographical impact on magic and the differences Gordon has noticed moving from the city of London back to rural Australia and how it's affected his practice, the Demiurge's main goals and its attempt to fulfill them in the modern world, that the various generations of cell signal frequency could be the vehicle of mass experimentation and that 5G could be full-blown mind control, that there is noticeably less depopulation chatter and that maybe the reasoning is because it's already been solved. We talk about how Gordon's decentralized all the things philosophy applies to the reenchantment of the world and the parallels between taking a dog to the vet and the high strangeness experiences humans have with entities. The things you need to know, people, but (laughs) seriously, I couldn't do it without your support, and I have turned down a lot of offers for advertising and sponsorship and outside money based on the numbers, thousands of dollars a month, but I will not compromise the show, and I hope that you respect that because I'm gambling on your support. I bet on the fact that you're going to find this show genuine and entertaining And that my choice to keep the price low means that you're going to be motivated to join up. My life is in your hands, dude. My life is in your hands. But that said, I did what I can. Your move, deep state mind manipulators, polarizing pundits, and your demiurgic bureaucratic agendas of enlightenment denial. Your fucking move. Happy holidays and Merry Christmas. We're going to talk about angels and miracles with Rosemary for a few hours tonight. Coast a.m., day after Christmas, all the angels in his heart. What Genesis did right. It's getting old, it isn't pleasing. I turn the station, I am done. Maybe I should shut my mouth Mr. Jones is quite the harlot With all the ads he's reading now Working with my team, we set out to find the best for But it's fine Now that I have THC I'm feeling more at home than I ever have before. Infowars are just drowning slowly. Coast to coast isn't going nowhere. All these shows are just drowning slowly. I'm sure you must kind of dirty after each commercial spot tuning in 
before 